You are dismissed, youth group. Anyone that's disappointed to see me up here not trace, dismissed, yeah, please. All right, Heidi, thank you. Well, again, good morning as everyone makes their way out. We, uh, we started our Advent series. We're doing something a little different uh, this year. Is normally when you get into Advent, uh, you guys have probably heard this over the years, like we'll maybe approach, you know, Christ the King, Christ the Servant. You know, you, you kind of do all these things. And Trace and I were at our, uh, uh, we were at an elders meeting, which right now with two elders, it's just Trace and I drinking coffee and talking uh, about the church things we want to do, and we had this idea, I'm sure he told you last week, is to look at Christ as the living hope, that he's been the hope of all creation since Genesis. And the story, of course, you know, in Genesis, we God makes man, he makes woman, and he places them in the garden to live with him. Right, this is uh, a high honor, right, that he would have creation that God wants to dwell among and he gives man authority over his new creation. Genesis is a unique book because there's already something there, right? Like the story just kind of random. We have no idea what happens. The story picks up in the beginning, right? Like there's water already there. There's chaos. There's darkness, right? So and then God takes what is absolute chaos and he begins to order things. Genesis really... It is about creation, but it's about order. It's God ordering a good world that's chaotic. And he places man and woman in there, and he gives them a job, and that's to rule the earth. He said, subdue it, right? He goes, I'm giving you all these things, and the animals are going to reproduce, and the, the fish in the sea, and the birds in the air, and everything is to be under your domain. And then, of course, we know that we immediately sin. You know, God, he gives us one rule, and that's the one rule we're going to break, Right? Anyone has kids, if you tell the one, don't touch this one thing, what's the one thing they're going to touch? That one thing, right? God should have known. He probably didn't know. It's a whole discussion for later. But man fails the test, and of course, what happens is, is we get kicked out of the garden, right? So God guards it. And so really the garden, uh, I think it's literal, uh, but it doesn't matter what you think about it. But the idea is that we are now out of God's, we can't live with God. Now, people will say that God abandons man at this point, and even some Christians, like, hey, sin has separated us, which is true. But you know, immediately God is talking to Adam and Eve's kids, right? Like the Cain and Abel, like God doesn't disappear. He's still talking to us. So even in our sin, God has never left his creation. Amen? But if we look, today I've, I've only got one point I'm trying to convince you of. And I don't even need to convince you of it. It's just the scripture. It's just the truth. And I want you to see the big picture. The Bible interpretation gets really easy if we don't get in the weeds, right? The Bible, if we just pull back and we look at the big meta story, I think things become very clear what God wants from us, what he wants from humanity, where we're at and where we're going. But back to Adam and Eve, we've been kicked out. And then what happens is, is God calls Abraham, right? He decides to make a nation out of somebody who's not a nation. Matter of fact, Abraham and his wife uh, can't conceive, Right? So this is really interesting. You guys remember, I think it was Babe Ruth. Remember when he called the home run shot? It's all real famous where he points to the grandstanding. He's basically said, I'm going to hit a home run, right? Like, it takes a lot of guts to call your shot like that. Well, at the beginning of the Bible, God actually does this. He calls a shot. He says, I'm going to make a nation. He goes, I'm going to make you a nation that's going to outnumber the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And this nation is going to come 
the promise. Remember, God, at the very beginning, when Adam and Eve got kicked out, he actually made a promise to redeem man and to crush the serpent. Remember that? He told Eve, he said, the seed of the woman will crush your head. And so, why am I talking about this? We're talking about Jesus' eternal hope. God planted the seed of hope all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. And humanity has always hoped in deliverance. But God calls a shot. He makes Abraham his wife. Of course, you know how these things run. But these people, again, just like Adam and Eve, they rebel and they sin against God. They leave their maker. What happens then is we see a big pattern happen here where the Israelites now, whom they're called, they go into captivity and to slavery. And they, this happens multiple times. And then the story of the Bible is them going, uh, God delivering them, right? And of course, in the big story, they go into the wilderness, right? And then God restores them and brings them to a promised land. So if you go to my first picture here, I hope you can see it. I'm going to walk you through the big, if you've never understood, what's the point of the Bible? What is it trying to tell me? There are several themes that are going to run across your Bible. I'm going to point. I hope the speakers aren't going to feed back, so I'll stand in front of my mic. But if you can read this top one, it says living with God. Now, on your left, it says Garden of Eden. So this is how we started our life with God. Humanity lives in the Garden of God. Then we move down. Man disobeyed. We rebelled. That's the common Christian word for it. They rebelled. Right? Like we willfully disobeyed God. We move down. After rebellion always comes exile. Right? We got kicked out of the garden. You go into captivity or you go into slavery. Well, in the case of the Old Testament, we went to Babylon. They went to Egypt. Like in Jesus' time, Rome was occupying the Holy Land. And then what God does is God now has to deliver the people. Right? But he always delivers through what we would call the wilderness. It's never out of slavery and right into the palace. This is not the Jeffersons. We're not moving on up, right? We're just moving out to the woods, and it gets real tough. Matter of fact, when you go into the wilderness, a lot of people think, hey, it was better back when I was in Babylon. It was better when I was in Egypt. It was better when I was in captivity, because at least there, they fed me. Now I'm in the wilderness, right? People start to complain. But ideally, after the God delivers us, he's bringing us to a destination. God doesn't just deliver his people to bring them into the wilderness. In the case of the Old Testament, he wanted to bring them into the promised land, right? A land flowing with milk and honey, where you'll have your Davidic king, I'm going to take care of you. It's in a land of abundance. Round and round we go. So the next slide, please. Now, what happens is, is God has to inject hope into the equation, because while we don't get to pick where we're at in the circle, we're born into this world against our will. Not against God's will, but we had no say-so in the matter, right? We all just popped up when we popped up, right? 70s, 80s, 90s, some of you 2000s. We're here. We had no say-so in the thing. So it'd be great if we popped up and we're living with God, but we can cross that off because we're not there. Right? Rebellion, well, that's already happened. We've into a fallen world. So with us, we were all born here. doesn't matter when you were born. You'll notice, yeah, we're not in Babylon, Egypt, or Rome. But we're actually slaves to sin and to self. The Bible says that we are slaves to sin. We're slaves to our selfish ambitions. We're born into this. We're born into captivity. That's why we preach the idea that every man is fallen. Every man needs a redeemer. Nobody can live a perfect life. We're all going to miss it. 
I'm sure if we ask them, you don't have to raise your hand. Every single one of us here has missed the mark with God. We've sinned, we've lied, we've stolen, we've cheated, we've fornicated, we've lusted. You know, that's just the first hand, right? Like, that's the easy sense. It gets grosser as we, we go down. We've all done it. And the Bible says we're all guilty of this. So this is where we're at. So God has to inject hope. Now, Trace taught you last week, hope is not a wish, right? Sometimes we use hope like that. Hey, I hope my wife is going to buy me lunch today. I do hope that. She's not going to. <laughs> hope in the Bible, Trace taught you last week, is a certain expectation of an actual reality. Biblical hope is grounded in faith and trust. But it's not a wish. Get that out of your mind. I hope I, hope I win the lottery. I hope I get a tax return. Blah, blah, blah. It's wish. Biblical hope is different. It's trust in the promises of God. Amen? So God now, because we are in exile and captivity and slavery, he has to inject hope. The Bible says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. Has anyone here been in what seemed like a hopeless situation? There's nothing worse than that, right? They're going to repossess my car, and you don't know where that money is coming from. Living hopeless sucks. It's just terrible. So God gives us hope in Jesus. We said, hey, you can be delivered. And this is the gospel that we preach. That we are no longer slaves to sin and unrighteousness. So what happens is a man or woman becomes saved and God delivers them. He delivers them from the bondage of sin and death. And we, the Bible says we become a new creation in Christ. If you've heard this language, behold, I make all things new. Right? We're a new creation. We live with God now. Now we commune. But we haven't gone back to the top of the square yet because he's still delivering. So we talked about hope through the ages, so we have the promise of hope in the Old Testament. Jesus shows up as the living hope. That's what we're going to talk about today. What was, what was, he was actually here. Next week, Trace will talk about the promises of getting us back to that top square, top circle. And then the fourth week, our final one, we'll actually talk about what the Bible actually says about what will it like to live with God back in the garden. Very fascinating. So, go to the next picture. Please, picture. Uh, moved outside, it's a little harder to see. We see that in the wilderness is required is faith and hope. So in the wilderness, Israel failed the test because God is trying to lead them. You remember they went across the Red Sea there in the wilderness. They didn't have enough food. God provides manna from heaven. He's feeding them miraculously. And he's trying to take them somewhere. But the people complained and they didn't have faith in the desert. And God says, like, with those people, I wasn't, we're not pleased. And he killed most of the people in the desert. Really sad story. His people he's trying to deliver. Most of them, except for Caleb, Joshua, and all others, made it into the promised land. Because even Moses did not get across the promised land. God wasn't happy with that generation, the Bible says. They needed faith. You know, see up there, you can't see it. It's a little bit, I, I thought it would be cool to use light gray, but 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Now these three things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest is love. So Jesus is our hope. He delivers us. We have to get to the point where we trust him. We hope and we trust. And it all works through love, through God's love. Like this whole thing works. In Hebrews 11, 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. You cannot separate faith and hope and love. They all work together. You can't have hope without faith. Right? Faith without hope says you're just... You're hoping, you're believing for something, but you don't know what. Hope is an actual reality, right? And then love makes the whole thing move. If it wasn't for God's love, 
of injecting Jesus in as the hope, this whole circle falls apart. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Now, let's move on with that story. Let's talk about what happened once hope arrived, right? Because we're looking at a living hope through the uh, the different parcels here. So let's go, to, if you've got your Bibles, that was my preamble. I promise the message is almost over. <laughs> Tracy even looked at it, he's like, dude, you got one scripture in there. So I'm not going to beat you up today. Let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 1. Let me pray, and we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time together, Lord. Be glorified in this house today. Jesus, you are high and lifted up. You are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great I am, the Alpha and the Omega. You were before the beginning. You existed before all things, created all things, and through your will, all things exist. Lord, we love you, and we're grateful to serve you in this house today. The church said, amen. Amen. All right. So last week, Pastor Trace read to you the Christmas story. That wasn't the point of his message, but you guys got to run at what Matthew looked like, and we call that the earthly view. Jesus, the Son of God, was born to earthly parents, right? You read that last week, Matthew 1. And uh, Mary, a virgin, right, gave birth to a son conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, John, the book of John actually gives us a spiritual viewpoint of what's happening. I thought I'd read that for you today. So John chapter 1, 1 through 14. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because it's uh, very plain English. But listen to this. It says, in the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Who did God create everything through? The Word. And nothing was created except through him. The Word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. Verse 6. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, here's our our hope injection, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all those who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. So keep that scripture up there, that last one. So from a spiritual vantage point, John basically says the creator has come into this world as light, right? Light in the midst of darkness. The darkness didn't understand what was happening. You know darkness isn't a thing, right? Darkness is just the absence of light. If you really think about it, right? Like light shows up and when light goes away, darkness shows up. So light was coming into this world. And that last verse there, it says, so the word became human and made his home amongst us. So God's plan, remember the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the snake. There's a whole, we could spend hours talking about the seed of the woman, the role of the church, and the role of Christ. 
we're not, that's not the point of today's message, but the idea that the promise is about to come to pass through this man. But he actually comes in the flesh. The Bible says he humbled himself and made himself a servant. So I'm going to tell you the point I'm going to try to make to you today. That first setup will tie it all together. But the point I'm going to make to you is that when Jesus showed up, the promise showed up, the biggest result was misunderstanding. It just confused a lot of people. Right? Now he accomplished. It's easy for us 2,000 years later to look back and understand what the scripture said and put it all pieces together. So why am I going to convince you of that? Because I think when Christ comes back the second time, we're still in the same boat. We're just confused, right? Like, that, this is why. But remember, I told you, the Bible is full of patterns. You can figure out the pattern. You can figure out what's going to happen next and how it's going to play out. God is a pattern, right? You've heard me say it. I love saying it because once I saw this, the whole Bible started to click for me. I'm sorry. You've, most of you have heard this a thousand times. <laughs> but we talked about this, right? Egypt, uh, Israel's in Egypt. God delivers them through water, through the Red Sea, into the wilderness. Jesus is born. His family gets called out of Egypt. The very next scene in the Bible, he's coming out of the waters of baptism into the wilderness. Pattern, pattern, pattern. Jesus is the faithful Israel. Jesus is tempted with after 40 days, just like Israel in 40 years, Jesus had no bread. Saints like, make these rocks bread. And Jesus quotes what the Israelites should have. Man does not live on bread alone, but every, right? That comes out of Deuteronomy, the wilderness experience. Jesus is living the same exact test Israel went through, but he passed it. You see that? Pattern, pattern. There's always a pattern of exile, water deliverance. Look at us. We're born into slavery. We get baptized. We come out of the water. We're living in the wilderness right now. We're saved. We're following God by hope, faith, love, and trust. We haven't, the kingdom's not here yet. We haven't been raptured yet. We haven't been delivered yet. If you asked me where we're at, we are in the wilderness, and Jesus is the new Moses. It's, I mean, it's fascinating. So where are we at? We're in the wilderness. This idea that people think that this is heaven on earth, this is not heaven. Heaven is not here right now. Amen? God is delivering us. So, the biggest thing, Jesus shows up. He's in the earth. The one who created it is here. And the point I'm going to make to you is everybody just misunderstood him. Right? And I'm going to walk you through that, and it's going, to, it's going to come in spades in the coming weeks when we talk about this. But first, Jesus was misunderstood by his opponents, those who resisted him. Uh, you can't see it. Uh, there's a, a gentleman that wrote a very good article. His name is Jeff Scott Kennedy. I'm not going to tell you when I quote him, but I am quoting him if you're curious about the sources on this. So some of the stuff is not my own work, uh, just FYI. Some of it is, some of it is not, so... It gets kind of awkward when you're preaching and you try to cite sources the entire time. So I'll tell you up front, I'm going to quote a guy named Jeff Scott Kennedy, and I'll send you the paper if you want it. Number one, Jesus is misunderstood by his opponents. So Jesus shows up, and he's resisted. Now, who, who are the people that resist Jesus the most in his earthly ministry? Yeah, the Jews, his people, right? The religious leaders mostly, right? So they misunderstood. At first, they misunderstand what the role of the Messiah was, right? This is the biggest thing we talk about is they thought the Messiah would come and kick Rome out of the territory, right? So they misunderstood what the Messiah's job was to be. Number two, they misunderstood Jesus' spiritual language when he said things like, I am the bread of heaven. His opponents really couldn't understand what Jesus was saying to them. They also failed to grasp his use of typological language, such as tear down this temple. 
I will rebuild it in three days. Right? They didn't understand metaphor and allegory and all these things and what it referred to. Their flawed understanding of scripture altogether, they misunderstood the Messiah's origin. Remember that? Like, what is there any good that comes out of what? Nazareth. Nazareth. Right? They, how is this happening? Like, how is how does this? They, they didn't even understand where this guy was supposed to come from. Another spot in, in John chapter 10, they misunderstood his use of referring to himself as the great shepherd. And even the highest educated amongst the religious elite could not comprehend Jesus' words. That's found in John chapter 3. And the big part is his opponents of Jesus did not understand him or at best even have a partial understanding of Christ's te- teaching and mission and they refused to believe that he must die. The Messiah must die. Now, if you've zoned out up until now, here's where they missed it. Jesus communicates to them that without a willing heart to believe, they cannot possibly understand him. The big thing he communicated to them, and that's the quote from Jeff Scott Kennedy there, is there's going to be misunderstanding if you don't have a willing heart to believe. Right? So in their case, they're blinded by unbelief. I'm sure you've seen that, right? Now, next, Jesus is misunderstood by his followers. Now, the misunderstanding of the followers kind of fall under very similar three categories. Um, I'm going to read this here. It says, first, they simply fail to fully understand something he says or does, such in the case that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. The scripture, the NIV states, at first the disciples did not understand all of this, right? So you guys, remember when Jesus rolled up in Jerusalem on a donkey? The text makes it clear that they had a partial understanding at the time, and a fuller understanding came later after Jesus had been raised from the dead. Second, Jesus' followers failed to recognize the symbolic significance of his teachings and actions. It was very common. And third, they failed to perceive Jesus' real mission, namely that he must die and rise again. That's the big theme across his believers, right? Like, he, he can't die, God forbid, right? Like, Jesus, his whole mission, he was born to die. He, that was his one job. And the disciples really couldn't understand it. Now, even amongst his family, Jesus' brothers, did they believe? No. Jesus actually, I don't know if you knew this, but Jesus has brothers. One of his brothers wrote, wrote one of the books of the Bible. While he was on this earth, Jesus, his brothers, his family, other than his mom, had little to no faith in him. His own cousin, John the Baptist, came to him at one point, sent a messenger to him in Matthew 11.3 and says, Are you the one to come or should we look for another? Right? He had seen miracles. like he had, he had heard all these testimonies. And he still had doubts. Like, are you the one? Is this happening? John contains a scene in which uh, Jesus cleanses the temple. And he answers his opponents by saying that if they tear down this temple, he will restore it again in only three days. His opponents do not understand and reject him. But the disciples also do not understand. But they choose to follow him. So we have a fork in the road where people who don't believe reject his teachings because of misunderstanding. His disciples don't understand, but they follow him even though they don't understand. Do you see what's happening here? I'm telling you this because I'm about to make the whole point. It's going to tie back into the beginning. So we have some, both parties don't understand. But one party follows him anyways. And the other party rejects him. Their faith in Jesus' unprecedented miracles is not shaken despite their lack of understanding. 
but we know that understanding does not lead to obedience and to trust. Again, listen to that. Understanding, understanding the Bible does not lead to obedience and to trust, which is what God is after. God is not after you understanding this. He's after obedience and trust. Amen? We want to understand it. Like our job is to teach you to understand this. But God is after obedience and trust. I want to read you a quote from uh, George MacDonald. Uh, I just happened to read this, this how God works. I just happened to be reading this this week, and it was on this topic. And he's talking about how to understand Paul uh, and, the, and the epistles. He says this. He says, the uncertainty in understanding Paul always lies in the intellectual region, never in the practical. What Paul cares about is plain enough to the true heart. However, it is far from plain to those who desire to understand goes ahead of their obedience. And that's where I think the modern church is at, is that our desire to understand the Bible is ahead of our obedience. God is after you need to be responsible for what you know right now. I heard this at the beginning of my Christian walk when I was in Bible college, and it's still true today. If you're having a hard time hearing from God, go back and do the last thing he told you to do. Right? Some of you want to move on in your relationship with the Father and the Son, but you haven't done what he told you to do, what you know to do already. Be faithful with what you know. Right? God, you've heard the parable to who's been given much, much will be required. He always gives more to the, the man or woman who's faithful with the much. Be faithful with what you have right now. If you know to do something, do it now. Don't worry about everybody else. Amen? Amen. Understanding does not lead to obedience and to trust. When we have hope and faith, we follow Jesus, even though we do not fully understand. We're going to come back to that point. Last thing I want to say on this is Jesus was still misunderstood in his time, even after the resurrection. After his farewell discourse, Jesus was arrested, crucified, and he was resurrected. Mary Magdalene, Peter, and the other disciples who outran Peter failed to make a connection between Jesus' empty tomb, right? Christ's extensive speaking on it in the scripture. And after the empty tomb, verse 9 states, they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Jesus pretty much told them this. I'm going to die and rise again. He dies and the tomb's empty and everybody's still confused, right? Do you guys ever, anyone here ever watched The Simpsons? This reference may be totally lost. But they're trying to teach Homer to lie to the FBI. They're like, hey, they're just trying to get him to use a different name other than Homer. Like, hey, look, let's say, your name is Tim, right? So they're like, hi, Tim. And then Homer's sitting there like a blank face because that's not his name. He doesn't get it. So they're like, all right, I'm going to tap on your foot. I tap on your foot. All you have to do is say hi. They're like, hi, Tim. Yeah, tap on his foot. Whatever. The idea is that Homer's not a smart man. And it's really a funny scene. But Jesus is telling the disciples over and over again, this is what's going to happen. He starts off parables, and then finally he just straight up says, I have to die. Right? And then he dies, and everybody's still super confused. Despite all their confusion, the disciples followed Jesus. They trusted him. Amen? And they keep following. So again, when we hope to understand, it doesn't just lead to obedience. We're going to misunderstand it. And the coming weeks, we're going to see when we talk about the return of Christ, 
The Bible is nothing but pattern after pattern after pattern. I think when we get to finally live in the millennial kingdom, we'll look back at the things that men taught about what it would be like, and it's going to be nothing like it. I don't think anyone's probably ever gotten it right. Right? Because when Jesus showed up, it blew everyone's mind so much. Right? It, it, it was counterintuitive what this guy was doing. How could the Davidic son, the perfect son of God, be dining with prostitutes and tax collectors? Like, that was hurting people's brains. He had the power of God. He was raising the dead. Right? He was doing all these things. And it just, it, there was, nobody could put him in his box. His followers, the religiously, the only person who knew what was going down was Jesus himself. And I think so it is with the return of Christ in the millennial kingdom. So that's the idea of fighting about eschatology and fighting about these things. I think it's just completely pointless. I, we have no idea, right? And it's easy to call your shot after it's all happened and we've watched it play out. That's coward's work. It's already done, talking about it, right? But nobody can guess what's happening here. Okay, last picture. Let's tie a big bow around this. Hope and faith follow Jesus even though they do not fully understand. I think we have we return to one of those pictures. So how does this play out? If we're in the wilderness, and we know that when Jesus showed up as hope and delivered his people, there's a lot of understanding. That's the point I was trying to make. Nobody ever really said what was going to happen. If we now pull us into the picture and we're in the wilderness, I would have to say most of us still don't fully understand. And what I'm talking, not talking about is understanding the Bible. I'm talking about understanding why things happen in this world. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why does this happen? Why does so-and-so have to die? Why is life played out for me like this? Why? There's great injustices in this world that we just can't comprehend. Like, God, why? Maybe there's questions in the text. God, why is it like this? Why Why this? Why is this a sin when the world says it's not a sin? Like, why? Right? There are hard things we have to deal with in this world, right? And it's only going to get tougher. And what we learned throughout the Bible is that hope and faith follows even when we don't understand. When our heart is broken and we don't know why life has turned out the way it's turned out, some people will turn and say, well, if there was a God, this wouldn't be happening. But that's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is that bad things have been happening since the very first page, and God knows about it and he cares about it, but he still allows it to happen. But those who follow him, they're not saying, hey, it's okay. They're saying, it's like, no, God, even though I don't understand why this is happening, my hope and my trust is still there. That's the story of the Bible. That's who God is after. In the wilderness, God, how did you bring us out of Egypt, out here to the middle of the desert? There's scorpions and there's snakes and there's lack of food and there's lack of water. God just wanted to look for somebody to say, just say thank you that I got you out of slavery and I'm bringing you somewhere. They couldn't do that. They had to complain about this. Just trust him. Some of you are in a spot in your life where you're just wondering, how did it end up like this? The Bible teaches us that our lives are full of high points and low points. Just because you've been in a valley for a while doesn't mean you have to stay there. Hope and trust. God has delivered. He always delivers. That's the story of the Bible. He doesn't leave his people here or here. That's not his job. The Bible is a story of Exodus. This is one moving from one place to another. 
on the macro level and the micro level in your life. This isn't just a big picture thing. The Bible runs in patterns, but our life runs in patterns, right? We have the good life. We screw it up. Can anyone testify to that? Where things were going good and you made a decision. It might have been at the Marine Corps recruiter's office. Matter of fact, I think most of our bills start right up. Actually, the ills start on that arrow. There's something that happens in that arrow that makes us talk to the recruiter, right? And then the recruiter just snowballs us into where we're all. Now we're all here in Oceanside talking to each other. So we're all, we're all part of this fun game. No, but things are good. We screw up, and we need to find a way out of it. We get delivered from it. We go back to good life, and around and around our life goes. So the story of the Bible plays out individually. It plays out in our communities. It plays out in our countries. It plays out scripturally. Like, this is the big pattern. I, you know, Again, I didn't come up with this idea. But once you can see this for what it is, what God is after, we talked about this, that without faith it is impossible to please God. God wants this living hope <laughs> in our lives where, hey, I'm not stuck here, right? I trust in something. And the Bible teaches us that the attitude is like, hey, even if I die, I know where I'm going to be. Remember Daniel when he's, I think it's during the, they're about to be tossed into the fiery furnace. I'm like, even if God doesn't deliver me, man, I don't even care, right? God is able to deliver me, and if he doesn't, I'm still not going to bow down to you, King. And that's the attitude right there. The Bible says that this life is nothing but a vapor, it's a smoke, it's nothing, right? But I do believe and I do know that God does deliver us in this life and the life to come. Amen? Amen? So I'll say it one last time. Hope and faith follows Jesus, even though you don't fully understand. When Jesus showed up, so next week, again, Trace will hit this idea of the significance of the promises of what's to come. You may not understand, but trust him anyways. Amen? Amen. That's what faith and trust is. It's like, I don't fully understand, but I'm going to step out of the boat. I'm going to step onto this water. I'm going to trust you. Let's pray.